Let me recap here. We are in week four of a four-week sermon series uh, on marriage called Love Me Tender. In week one, here is the big idea. Singleness is the biblical norm for discipleship. Jesus was single all of his life. And so if the Bible compels you towards anything, it, it is to embrace singleness and being content as a single person as the normative feature of your life. Everyone's born single, everyone dies single, in eternity you're gonna be single, so let's embrace singleness. But, week two, it might be that God calls you out of singleness to start moving towards marriage, and so therefore you're gonna need to do something called date, okay? However you define it, dating, courtship, there's gonna be good reason to motivate you to get out of this single life uh, and to move uh, in towards, towards marriage, and dating is a way that we can do that. And so we looked at dating as a way of starting to explore this marriage process as two single adults wanting to meet together in, in one-on-one discipleship with no physical stuff getting in there, just trying to have an honest conversation about marriage. That's dating, that was week two. Week three is, we've been dating for a while, we've been dating for a whole year, 52 dates, once a week. We've been texting minimally because we're trying to keep this holy between the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, between, between parties. But now we know we wanna get into marriage, uh, so what's engagement look, type, look like? How do we know that we're ready? And we talked about the five C's. You can listen to that on the podcast coming soon. We po- uh, post that in a few weeks. So we talked about engagement last week. Here we are this week. Hey, I'm, I was a single adult. I dated. We're now engaged. So now I want to know what does marriage look like, okay? I know I want to move forward. I know it's time to get married. So just help us understand what the rest of our lives on earth is gonna be like until one of us dies and the other one buries the other person and we're single again. Because honestly, that's marriage, right? That is a glorious picture of marriage. We get married, maybe God brings us kids, and then I bury my spouse, and then I die and go to be with Jesus. And that's the end, and we're with Jesus in heaven together. So what's that marriage part look like? Uh, Natalie and I, we're watching a show called The West Wing on Netflix. Any West Wing fans here? I knew there were old people, cool, awesome. Um, so no, The West Wing is this uh, um, doc, uh, uh, television show about, um, obviously, politics, 1999-2006, about the uh, fictitious, or fictitious White House. Um, but at the very end, um, no spoiler, but the very end of the series, there's a new president who's coming on board, and they have this kind of process with the new president who's just been elected coming on board, where he sits down, and someone who's in the party says, hey, listen, you're about to be president, and I want you to know something. This is a defined role, and it has specific tasks associated with it. There's a, this role, there's something specific we want you to do, and there's a really good reason why we want you to do it. You're going to be president. This means that you're the leader of the free people, and the reason you're the leader of the free people is because people need a democratic representative, okay? So it's a role, it's the what, and it's the why. And so the president just kind of, the president-elect just kind of takes this all in and then it shows them transition to his first day of office and he's like, oh my goodness, what did I get myself into? And any of us who are married who are here today, we can tell you that's kind of how we feel, right? Because when you move from being a dating person to an engaged person, especially on that day of your wedding as you're driving off from the chapel going to your honeymoon, there's part of it that just kind of hits you and you go, I have a new role. It has specific tasks, kind of specific uh, themes to it. And there's some really good reasons why I've stepped into this role. It's a role, it's the what, and it's the why. 
What I wanna do here today is I wanna talk to you from God's word about marriage and in particular, the two unique roles that take place within marriage as women become wives and as men become husbands and these two roles that the Bible talks about here. I wanna talk about this Christian view of marriage because as defined roles with a what and a why and the apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 wants us to hear clearly what that is as he lifts up that vision. Now, having said that, let me just, just give you this caveat. Um, some of us in here are gonna be single all of our lives because God's ordained that and he's called us to be content in singleness and we praise God for that. And so you may be thinking, okay, I'm gonna be single. What do I need to know about marriage? And the answer is, as a single adult, especially as an older single adult, more than likely you're going to be mentoring or discipling people who are going to get married. And you're gonna to need to know how to talk about marriage and give them counsel, okay? Some married people have gone to single people for advice on their marriage. Just because you're never married doesn't mean you can't talk about marriage because Paul talks about marriage in Ephesians 5. So you can exegete Ephesians 5 and help your Christian friend grow in that area. Let me give it to you from another angle. Other, the, the, the other angle might be this. You might be here today, and it's not that you're not gonna get married. It might be that you're not ready to follow Jesus yet, right? You may not be a Christian yet, and you may not be ready to kind of move towards the Christian view of marriage, which may seem a little bit narrow or restrictive or something like that. So why should you sit here and listen to something about marriage, especially this guy articulate this view of marriage? And here's my answer to you. When I was a brand new Christian, my dad was not a Christian. In fact, my dad was an atheist. And um, I would go to him and I would try to, you know, evangelize and proselytize my dad. And my dad did something really interesting in that moment. He would, uh, he would always tell me when I was articulating the Christian faith incorrectly. So just think about that. My dad, I remember having these conversations where I would say, well, you know that Christians believe that, you know, all bad people should be murdered, right? I would just like come in with something like that. I never said that, but this is hypothetically. And my dad would go, um, Doug, in the Old Testament, there's a series of laws called the uh, Ten Commandments. Perhaps you've seen the film version of this. And one of those commandments is do not kill. You need to understand, if you're going to articulate the Christian faith, you need to keep this in mind. Christians don't believe that it's okay to kill people. Christians actually believe the opposite. And so if you're going to be a Christian, I want you to be Christian according to Scripture. Don't be a cultural Christian. Be a Christian who understands the Bible. And I remember looking back on that, that, that was just so impressive that my dad, even as a non-believer, was like, no, if you're gonna be a Christian, just articulate it appropriately, articulate it correctly. And so if you're not a believer who's here today, great, welcome, I'm glad you're here. So if you have Christian friends in the future who wanna talk about marriage, I want you to be prepared to articulate the Christian view of marriage to them. So if you're gonna be single, I want you to know about marriage. If you're gonna be a non-Christian, I want you to know about Christian view of marriage. Sound good? Okay, because those seem like pretty generous terms. Okay, cool. Well, with that, let's pray and let's jump in. Okay, enough with the setup here. Let's pray and jump into God's word. Jesus, I thank you that you have given us the Apostle Paul and given us Ephesians 5 so that we might understand a clear view of marriage. Thanks for Kyle and Ashley and Natalie who are gonna come up later on and help us really dive into the, the practical application to this. As we move towards both of those things, I pray that you would receive glory. It's in your name we pray, amen. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul, the Apostle Paul's written this letter to church in Ephesus, and in the first four chapters, he's tried to articulate some theological truth, and he's now shifted a little bit. In the first three chapters, he's telling truth um, in light of who God is, and he gets in chapter four, this is how we should live, and in four and five and six, he's 
now making some applications. So we're right in the application section of Ephesians 5. It's a letter, and I'm gonna read the whole thing from the English Standard Version. We'll just kind of, I'll stop a few points and kind of camp out and make some observations here. Here's how Paul begins. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Therefore, he begins. In other words, he's calling back to chapter four. What was he saying in chapter four? In chapter four, he was basically saying, hey, we're all one big family here. We're all the church. Therefore, because of that, I want you to be an imitator of God. Paul's command, the first command is that we are to imitate God. And if you have your little bulletins here, you can fill this out. All Christians, all believers are to imitate God by doing a few things. All believers are to imitate God by doing a couple of things. And the first thing he says in in verse two is walking in love. So the first way we're to imitate God is by walking in love. Um, Some of you guys maybe go to Comic-Con or some of you guys maybe go to Disney or some of you guys maybe go to Universal or some of you guys may just sit in your home and dress up because, and that's totally cool, no judgment, right? But you like to imitate things, right? Uh, You like, uh, you know, you like princesses, so you dress up like princesses, or you like stormtroopers, so you dress up like stormtroopers, or you like Indiana Jones, so you dress up like Indiana Jones, or whatever, right? Um, Imitation is something we do, right? When we like something, we kind of just want to participate in it. And so what Paul is saying is, hey, if you love God, it's going to be natural that you're going to want to imitate him. And so let me be very clear on how you're gonna imitate God. You imitate God by the way you love one another. You walk in love. If you're gonna be a Christian, an imitator of God, you are gonna need to walk in love. First big thing he says, imitate God, walking in love. Moving forward, he says this, starting in verse three. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. If you're gonna walk in love, don't be sexually immoral as is proper among the saints, verse four. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience." Therefore, do not become partners with them, people who practice that. Don't become partners. Don't become friends with people who are crude, who are sexually immoral, who are just uh, chasing towards evil things, who are acting very unloving. Don't be partners with them, okay? Verse eight, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, and he is quoting the Old Testament, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The second thing Paul says, and all of that really kind of intense language right there is we are to imitate God by the way we walk in love. We are to imitate God as children of light, okay? We are to be children of light. In other words, we're the children of God and the thing that describes us is that we are basically light shiners, okay? How many of you guys ever heard the song, this old light of mine, I'm gonna let it, right? Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm gonna let it shine, right? You've heard this song? 
Well, this is a song referring back to here, okay? If you're a child of God, you're someone who is a light bearer, okay? Now, very interestingly, uh, the way that light and darkness works is that light is something that invades darkness. Darkness does not invade light. So if you have a dark room and you turn on a light, what's actually happening is that light is going into the room and illuminating things. At no point are you, and you know this on a really bright day in Florida where it's really bright outside, you're like, I can't see, can we just, can we get a darkness machine to kind of darken it outside so I can see better? No, there's no. All you can do is cover your eyes because the way light works is it just invades everything. And what Paul's saying is, you're to imitate God by being children of the light. You invade the darkness. You go into the darkness and you bring light. You bring the light of Christ to everywhere you go. This is how we are to imitate God. We walk in love as children of the light. But Paul keeps going. In verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 21 is super important, men. As we get into verse 22, I want you to keep verse 21 in mind because here's the fourth way that we are to imitate God. We're to imitate God by walking in love as children of the light, as we walk in wisdom. We are to imitate God by submitting to one another, submitting to one another. Now, here's an interesting thing about the Greek here. The word love, as you think about it, and we probably need to make some definitions here, in the 21st century, the way we tend to think about love is we, especially in the English language, we confuse the word love, right? So for example, um, we have people who say something like this, I love my iPhone, right? I love my iPhone. And if I were an alien who came to the planet and I asked for a definition of love and they said love is romance, and you went, oh, okay, cool. And then I heard someone go, oh, I love my iPhone. As an alien, I would go, ugh, that's creepy. I think that's the sexually immoral that Paul was just talking about in verse three, right? You are romantic with a phone. And some of you are like, that's not too far off from the truth. People are always like, oh, I'm on Snap, right? Um, okay, but no, we're misplacing the term love there, right? So we're using love as a romantic. Some people, you'll say something like this, like, um, hey, did you, uh, did you go to that new restaurant? Yeah, oh man, I love that restaurant. Again, you're not saying you're romantic with a restaurant. What you're saying is, I really enjoy that restaurant. I like it a whole lot. Uh, Cold Stone Creamery has taught us that. Do you guys know what Cold Stone Creamery is? Okay, so we know that in Florida. (coughs) Cold Stone is like, there's three options. I like it, I love it, and I gotta have it, right? You go into Cold Stone and you try to just go, I want a large kind of ice cream thing. They're like, what size? I gotta have it, right? Like I want an I gotta have it of vanilla with birthday cake, thanks so much. Like it, love it. So love it is more than like. And so we tend to use the word love for if we like it a whole lot, right? Which makes it very difficult in dating relationships because you're dating someone and you're like, well, I like them a whole lot. Does that mean I love them? I don't know, right? I L U, I don't know if I love you, but I like you a lot, right? And so we're confused about this term love. In Greek, in Greek, the term, there, there are a couple of different terms there that describe specifically what that love is. There is a brotherly love, phileo, right? So I can say to like my homie Kyle here, I can be like, Dr. Barrett, I phileo you. You're my homie, right? 
I love you with a brotherly love. Philadelphia, Phileo Adelphia, right? That's the city of brotherly love. That's where we get that term from. So just, you know, the more you know, da, 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 right there. You guys can just write that down, right? So there's brotherly love. Then uh, there is like the love between parent and child. And then there's a love that's like an erotic kind of love. This is eros, right? And those are three different types of love. Well, the type of love that Paul's talking about here when he says walk in love, this is more like the brotherly love, okay? He's not talking about romantic love here. He sets up this whole thing by saying, walk in brotherly love, treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so his term of love there really could be described like this. Loving one another is imitating God or loving one another is behaving like Christ towards the other person such that when you say, I love you, you're basically saying, I would do what Jesus would do for you if you needed me to, right? And so if someone's having a bad day, the way you love them is you go, okay, what would Jesus do if he were in my flesh and my context right now? Well, he would give them a side hug and tell them, I'm sorry you're having a bad day. So therefore, you know what it means for me to love that person? Give them a side hug and say, I'm so sorry you're having a bad day. That's what he's saying, imitate God. By the way, we love one another walking as children of light in wisdom and submitting to one another. Let me talk about this term submitting to one another. You know what the term submitting to one another means in the Greek? The word picture there, anyone? Let, let me tell you what it's not. Submission in this sense is not being a doormat. So Paul isn't saying submit to one another such that like when you see one another, it's like, hi, how are you, how are you? And you both just lie down on the ground, right? And you're like, you can walk on me if you want to. It's very comfortable, right? Like, you can wipe your feet on me, I know they're muddy. This is not the definition of submission there, right? Submission just means I'm gonna consider your needs and desires and wants to be a priority over mine. And although I could come in and demand my needs, demand what I want, I'm gonna consider you better than me because this is what Jesus did, right? I'm going to subordinate myself to what you want. In other words, I'm going to treat you like Jesus would. Love and submission there are really these two sides of the same coin, the same type of behavior towards another person, the same type of disposition. And so what Paul's saying is the way we imitate God is by on the one side of the coin, loving one another like brothers and sisters, and by making sure we radically reprioritize the way we act and our needs and desires and practice submission with one another. Okay, you guys got that? Those are the two ways We imitate God and we do so walking wisely and walking as children of the light. Continuing on, verse 22, I want you to see this. Paul has now said all of that and then he gets into some specifics here. He has, to this point, been talking about community in general, okay? These are all communal things. Even at the very end there, he says, sing psalms, and hymns and spiritual songs. And he's actually hearkening back to things like 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul writes, where he writes again, what then brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, revelation, Uh, or in Colossians 3.16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. In other words, what Paul is saying in this whole section here is, here's how we behave as brothers and sisters, as Christians. We love one another and we submit to one another because we're trying to imitate God in the way he showed love to us. Uh, We don't love first, God loved first, and we imitate him in this. This is the way we act in community. And then in verse 22, Paul takes everything he's been saying generally about community, and he now makes it very specific for marriage. Here's what he writes. 
some of the most controversial stuff in our modern uh, time. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In verse 25, Paul continues, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, sometimes when we read this passage, we tend to read it through second wave and third wave feminism, and it sounds like this. Women, subject yourselves to men, because men are better than women. And so therefore, women, you become doormats, and you let men rule the world. They go to work, they bring home the bacon. Your job as a woman is to just be in the kitchen. You need to be eternally pregnant and baking something, okay? Uh, or I remember one time, uh, I heard this man in my church, my first church, he kind of made this joke. He said, um, do you know why there are no, um, uh, uh, let's see how I think. do you know why uh, women don't have drivers or shouldn't have driver's license? And I said, what? He goes, you know why women shouldn't have driver's licenses? And I said, why? He said, because there's no highway between the kitchen and the bedroom. And he was like, ha, 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 And I was like, your wife is standing right there. She's gonna hit you with a frying pan. She got out of the kitchen, right? And she's not gonna follow you to the bedroom because you're a jerk, right? Like, these are things that have gone on in society. And so women are kind of like, ooh, submission talk. I don't wanna have anything to do with this. And it's also kind of motivated all these young boys to grow up to become men where they just think, you know, we're the men. <clears throat> they get, for some reason, I don't know why guys do this, but whenever they're trying to be real manly, especially from te in Texas where I'm from, they start doing this thing right here. <laughs> and they start pulling up their pants. They're like, yeah, I have pants. And I want you to know that I'm pulling them up now because I wear the pants in this family, right? And so this is the dominant paradigm. Men go to work and flex their muscles, writing checks if they're accountants, right? Or whatever they do, right? And they come home and they bring home, I guess they bring home bacon, right, to the woman who cooks it and then they eat it together and then the man goes to the bedroom and impregnates the woman and that's all of life, right? That's the model and so therefore this is what Paul's talking about, right, right? Well, not so fast, my friend. Similarly, there's been a countercultural reaction to this uh, in the advent of second wave, third wave feminism where what happens is that these kind of popular gender norms in American society they switch, and so women go, they've, they've kind of grown up in these feminist households. They're like, you know what? I am every bit the man's equal. And so now I'm gonna go to work, and I'm gonna bring home the bacon, and he's gonna be in the kitchen, and I'm gonna take him to the bedroom, and he's gonna get me pregnant. And then he, once I give birth, he's gonna watch the kids. He's gonna be a stay-at-home dad, and I'm gonna be the woman. I'm a woman, hear me roar, right? And there's this kind of that whole reaction too. And there's some men who are like, yes, uh, so when you go to work, I get to play video games? Awesome, cool. So you just go, honey, uh, yay, feminism. There's a new game that came out. We're good, right? And so there's this new arrangement. So, so this is kind of the thing now. And so this obviously undermines that. Well, no, it doesn't really. Because that whole paradigm of 
uh, one partner is dominant and the other one is passive is not what the Bible's talking about here. They're not talking about active-passive relationships. This is not the Christian view of marriage. Here's what it is, though. Here's what it is. Remember, Paul has just talked about community. He said, everybody, everybody in community, all believers are to imitate God by doing at least two things, loving one another and submitting to one another before Christ, right? Jesus, who is God, came to earth and he loved everybody and he practiced submission to the Father over and over again. Jesus would say, I am not doing my own will, I'm doing the will of my Father. Jesus practiced submission to the Father in his entire life. Jesus wasn't by any means passive or weak or anything like that. He wasn't a doormat. This is a guy who overturned the society at that time, both Jewish society and Roman society, and uh, was murdered on the cross and rose after three days and uh, overcame the world, right? And started a, a, a radical kind of thing in, in Western culture predominantly, but also globally. I mean, this is, this is the most powerful human being who's ever lived because he was God, right? And he practiced submission, but he also practiced love. And God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? So inherent in the Trinity is these two, are these two competing ideas of, or not competing, but complementary ideas of love and submission. So these are practiced broadly in community. And it, it should make sense that when we get to marriage, we're talking about these two things. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. Human beings, especially men, we're, we're kind of dumb at times, right? We just, vision leaks, we forget things, we don't think about things, we get busy, our schedule catches up and we just drop the ball, we don't check everything off on our to-do list. And so God, in his mercy and in his wisdom, he said, I've got this brilliant idea. I've got this brilliant idea. I'm gonna create this institution which is gonna help me really champion these two ideals of love and submission as a means of imitating God. And it's gonna be called marriage. And when he does this, God creates these two things. He recruits value champions who live out the gospel by imitating Jesus. He creates value champions. If we think about love and we think about submission as these values which the Trinity practices to central complementary values to the act of imitating God, then what God says is, I want in this super radical type of community called marriage, because remember, marriage is just radical discipleship community. In this institution of radical discipleship community, I want to recruit values champions. Now, let me be very clear who these champions are. These champions are not men and women. The champions are husband and wife. The value, the value champions aren't men and women, they're husband and wife. And so before I move forward, just understand, Paul doesn't say women submit to men. Paul doesn't even say wives submit to men. And he doesn't say women submit to husbands. He says a woman is to submit to her husband individually, okay? So I'm a husband, right? And I'm a man. I, can, I cannot go up to any of you women and just go, you know, Ephesians 5, 22. Y'all need to practice some submission around here, right? If I were to ever do that, or if other men were to do this, just in Christ, punch them in the face. It's totally okay. Well, maybe slap them, right? Just, you know, affectionately. <laughs> Silly boy, don't you know that girls are smarter than boys? Doug says so. So just do that, right? So the, the two people he's talking about, the two roles here are husband and wife, okay? If you're not a husband, you don't have a wife, you're not, you're not calling these women to submit. Likewise, if you're not a wife who has a husband, you're not practicing submission or calling the husband to love you, right? This only happens, right? You can imagine this as a single adult who's content in your singleness. You're like, 
I'm not championing love and submission here. And then you have the ring and it's like, I do. And you go, now I have someone to practice this championing with. I have a husband, I have a wife. This is how this works. So God in his mercy recruits value champions to live out the gospel by imitating Jesus. And there's two of them. And here they are. It's the husband who champions love and models it. And it's the wife who champions submission and models it. The husband first champions love and he models it. When you think about what happens in marriage when a husband in this radical community champions love, basically think about it like this. God says, you know what? I really love this ideal, this vision, this value of love. And um, I want people in Christian community to understand it. And so I need somebody with a particular skill set who can just be a champion, be a cheerleader for this idea of love, of treating one another, of behaving towards one another as Christ behaved. And so I'm gonna give this to husbands within the context of marriage, okay? I want you husbands to really champion this kind of love towards your wife, okay? And this is secret service type stuff because here's how Paul says it. He's not saying just be romantic with her, Okay, so don't everybody start playing Barry White and just like, oh, okay, so this is like a Marvin Gaye type scenario. No, this is behaving like Christ towards your wife, right? This secret service stuff. I, Paul says, you're gonna, husbands, you need to love your wives as Christ loved the church. You need to lay down your life for her just as Jesus literally laid down his life for the church. Think about how did Jesus treat the church? That's the way you husbands are to treat your wife, okay? You give up your very life. If, you're, if someone is pulling a gun on your wife, you are jumping in front of that bullet. Um, if someone is talking ill about your wife in public, you are stepping in front of them and you are taking the matter up. You are the secret service agent of your wife, husbands. That's what it means. You are guarding her, you're protecting her, you're making sure she's okay. Not because she's weak, but because she's the queen. And you always send a secret service detail to protect the queen. That's just how it works, right? This is the idea uh, of love here. And Paul says, uh, the, the husband is the person who's a champion that. So similarly, here's what this means. This means you are laying down not only your life, but you are laying down your lifestyle for your wife when you get married. Laying down not only your life, but your lifestyle. So husbands, let's say you take up the traditional norm of going to work and bringing home the bacon, whatever the bacon is, right? Or if some of you are Jewish and you don't eat pork, you're bringing home the turkey bacon. Or if that's too much, like maybe you're just bringing home the veggie bacon uh, that would make Ron Swanson very uncomfortable on Parks and Recreation. But however you bring that item home and you get home, you're like, oh my goodness, the week. It's just been so hard. I had like all these meetings and I worked, you know, I've already worked 40 hours so far and it's Wednesday and not even hump day is happy. I just wanna get home and I just need 15 minutes to unwind in front of the TV. So, and you know, wife is over here and she's like, hey, I wanna spend time with you. Can you just give me 15 minutes? No, you can't just... She can't just give you 15 minutes because right now what you're thinking about is your lifestyle. You're the husband. Your job is to champion love. And so when you get home and your wife says, let's spend some time together, you know what you do? You spend time together because that's what you're supposed to do. You're laying down your lifestyle. You get home, now your real job begins, husbands. This is what it is. Your, your secret service detail, you walk through that door and the earpiece goes in and you're like, yes, ma'am, what can I do? I need to go to the store. Yes, ma'am, I'll clear the aisles, let's go, right? You drive her there, drive a Miss Daisy to the store, right? And you let the queen out and you make sure she's okay. And she gets inside and you help her out and you're attentive and you make sure you take care of her every uh, need. Why? Because you are the love champion and God's designed you to be the one who is meant to behave like Christ and model that at all times. On the flip side, 
Wives, you become the submission champion. And the submission champion means this. Uh, It means you're the one who constantly reprioritizes your husband's needs and serves him in such a way that he understands that you are demonstrating Christ-like submission towards him. Okay? You're not a woman who subjugates herself to a man because he's a man and he's stronger. No, you're saying because of Jesus, I'm going to practice submission in this situation. I'm gonna set my priorities down and, and let your priorities come to the surface because I wanna model Christ-likeness towards you. Okay? Let me, let me give you kind of a, a practical example of this. Okay, you and your, your uh, maybe your husband, okay, so in my situation, you know, me and Natalie, let's say we're, we're thinking about a vacation, okay? And we're looking at our budget and we go, okay, we've got X number of dollars. Here are all the places we could go under X number of dollars that would be smart financially. So let's come up with some places. And Natalie says, I wanna go to Mars. And I say, uh, no, I wanna go to Venus, right? And um, Natalie goes, I think we should go to Mars for these reasons. And I go, no, I think we should go to Venus for these reasons. And really, it's a toss-up. We could feasibly go to both places. Someone's gotta kind of give there, right? And that decision in that moment, this is not all decision, but in that moment, what I think this text says is, hey, wives, you might think about going, hey, if all the facts are there and your husband feels strongly about this, and really it's a toss-up, it might be good for you to go, hey, honey, you know what? I'm gonna kind of submit to your leadership here. And this seems like a good option. I'm okay with it. I would prefer to go to, to the other place, but if you wanna go here, that sounds great. We can afford it. It'll be a good trip. Let's do that. And now let's put these two together in this decision-making process, right? If the wife is being the submission champion and the husband's being the love champion, then when that decision starts to go down, kind of two things are happening simultaneously. First, the husband notices my wife just submitted herself to my leadership in this decision. And he immediately kind of in God's design goes back to Ephesians 5, 21. Oh, she's submitting right now because she's trying to lift up this value of submission, which Jesus practiced. And I know that I'm supposed to submit to her before Jesus because that's what Paul says in Ephesians 21. That's how community works. And so I really need to think through, am I gonna be a jerk and go, no, we're going here? Or do I need to really consider that it might be a better thing for us to go to where she wants to go so that I can practice submission? And you kind of get this image that the husband comes in and goes, hey, you know what? I know I said I want to go here and you want to go here and you just submitted and said we could go here. Here's what I want to do. I, I think really at the end of the day, it's a toss up and thank you for leading in submission here. I want to, I want to follow you in that by going, you know what? No, this is, this is your call. I want to give this back to you. So let me, let me make that even more practical how Natalie and I will sometimes do this. We do the classic going out for a date thing, right? Um, and we go, you know, we get in the car because... We don't plan ahead because we have kids. And it's like, you know, when you have kids, it's like always like a hostage situation, except in reverse. You're like, okay, we've got them trapped inside and uh, we're not negotiating with them. And can we get outside and remove ourselves from them? And once you do, you're like, we're free. And you get in the car and you turn it on, you get out of the driveway and you're like, I don't know what to do. We haven't been here before. Like it's been, I don't, I don't know. And so we get into now the thing where we go, where do you wanna go? I don't know. Where do you wanna go? I don't know. Where do you wanna go? And so inevitably it's really funny. Natalie and I will, will do this where I'll say, hey, I think we should go to an Italian food restaurant. And she'll say, I think we should go get Mexican. And really it's a toss up. And I'm like, yeah, I'm feeling kind of Italian pizza. Oh, you know, I'm kind of feeling Mexican, whatever. And so Natalie will do this. You know what, Doug? 
we can go to Italian. I don't care. Like, it's really okay. I just want to spend time with you. She submits. And I go, hmm, she's the submission champion. I feel you, Jesus. I need to practice this too. Okay, so I'll say, Natalie, you know what? You're right. I've had a lot of Italian. We don't need to go again. Let's do Mexican. And then something really unique happens. Natalie's like, no, I want Italian now. And I'm like, no, I want Mexican. She's like, Italian. I'm like, Mexican. I'm like, what's going on here? Here's what's going on. It's Ephesians 5.21. We're submitting to one another. And so now, now in my husbanding, I've got a lead. And I've got like, oh man, someone needs to make a decision. And now I feel the burden of being a husband. I need to lead in love here and just make a call. Let's go get Mexican food. And she says, okay. And I say, okay. And that's how it all both works together in the dynamism, okay? Natalie champions submission. I champion love. I, husband champions love. Wife champions submission. When the husband leads, when you go to the grocery store and the husband's like, I'm gonna be on security detail. I'm gonna be attentive. We're gonna make sure everything's okay, all that. It's like God designed it for the woman to go, oh, he's loving me right now. In fact, he's leading in love. He's behaving like Christ towards me. And you kind of get the sense that the woman's designed to go, Mm, I get it, Jesus. I'm supposed to imitate you by walking in love. Thank you for my husband who has championed that virtue right now. Help me know all the areas I need to continue to walk in love as well. Meanwhile, the husband's going, my wife is submitting right now. Jesus, I need to imitate you by submitting. Thank you for my wife who's the submission champion. Help me know all the areas I can lead or, or, or move out in submission, right? So the whole marriage unit right there is constantly this championing of these two complementary values that shapes the other person in the, in the character in the same way, such that you're always someone going, I don't care you, 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 let's make this decision, okay. And let me just tell you, across all the decision-making process, if this is the way you two are operating, is this the, if this is the ethos of your marriage, your marriage is gonna be fine. Because inevitably, something's gonna happen, especially as y'all think through the capacity issue. Remember, you don't get married unless there's uh, chemistry and there's similar competency and there's character and there's a career plan and there's community buy-in, right? That's what we learned last week. And so you come back to the kind of competency capacity thing. You guys are equally yoked. Um, my, I married a very smart wife here, okay? And so oftentimes when we're making decisions, Natalie say, hey, we need to make a big decision. You're the husband. I want you to lead in this, lead in love. And I'll go, okay, what do you think? And she'll say, well, I've done the research and I think A, B, and C. And here's my wise husband leading, bringing home the bacon decision. We're gonna go with your call, right? Because you've done the research and you're smart. And so I think the best thing for our family is to, to go with that, right? And sometimes we come into decision-making process and Nellie says, I think we should do A and I think I sh we should do B. And I say, I, let's go with B. She submits and I go, okay, well, maybe we should do A. And she goes, no, 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 B is better. And I go, okay, cool, B is better. And I, I go, right? And we move. And it happens a lot of different ways like that. What's, what's not important, what's not important in any of that, in the decision-making process in being in marriage, it's not important is the decision you ultimately make. That's not what's important. What's important is that the husband lifts up that burden of championing love in marriage and behaving like Christ towards his wife and that the wife embraces the burden of championing submission and models that before her husband so that there's this mutual edification process that's always taking place as iron is sharpening iron and you're moving forward in Christ-likeness in intense, radical discipleship community. Let me make this super practical for y'all. I'm gonna read the concluding verses and then kind of tell you a story here. Conclusion. Uh, 
Paul con- concludes here in verse 31. He says, therefore, in light of all of this, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. Okay? There's a, there is this uh, unique time in American history uh, in the late 90s where, I don't know if you know this, but there weren't any Starbucks, okay? So I know all of you, how many of you were born after 1997, okay? Okay, how many of you were born after, let's see, I'm sorry, 1987? Who's born after 1987? Who's not born after 1987? Okay, so all of you were born after 1987? Okay, yeah, you're all young and I'm an old person. I got that, right? In 1987, the first Starbucks goes out right about that time. And so it just, there's something unique that happens. I remember being young and hearing about this and they're like, hey, there's this place called Starbucks and if you go there, you can pay $90 for a cup of coffee and people are doing that. And I just remember going, that's ridiculous. People are paying money for like, like that much money for a cup of coffee. Because in Texas, we have this thing called Whataburger. You can go there, you can pay 50 cents and you can get a cup of coffee and it's fine, right? But you know, it's fancy coffee, it's Italian coffee, there's high-end tea, you know, all this stuff, frappuccinos. And so I remember hearing about it and I just thought that's absurd. I had all these friends that were raving about Starbucks. As I get into middle school and high school, I hear about it. There's none in my hometown, but you know, in the big city, right? If you're from a small town in the big city, they have Starbucks, right? And you're like, oh man, we can go to the big city. We can get a Starbucks, right? We can come home. It's a good weekend, right? And you hear about it and you're like, this is so absurd. This is so absurd. And I remember I moved to Waco, Texas to go to college and um, I ask all the college students, what's the cool thing to do? They're like, bro, we gotta go get coffee. And I'm like, really? They're like, oh, you don't understand. There's the coffee shops, there's the Starbucks, right? And like, he, he's talked about in these glowing terms, like, it's Starbucks, it's everything I've ever dreamed of. All of your dreams will come true there, there's magic, right? And there, there's these people called baristas and they, they just deliver this liquid into your body and it makes all things good, right? And I had really never had coffee or caffeine. Like, I, this wasn't my scene. And so I just remember, I'm like a freshman. I'm like, okay, we'll go to the Starbucks thing. So uh, smartly, what Starbucks started doing is they started putting coffee shops, Starbucks coffee shops in like every town. And they tried to like do the demographics to where it was in driving proximity to everybody. That was really smart on their part. In fact, there was this Onion article uh, in the late 90s. Um, and it was Starbucks opens new Starbucks in bathroom of existing Starbucks. That was the title. And that's basically what was happening, especially across the Starbucks overexpanded in the mid-2000s and then had to scale back. Um, but so I remember, uh, flash forward back to 2000, I go to my first Starbucks and I walk in and I walk up and I'm like, hey, like I, I, want, a, I want a cup of coffee. And they're like, well, what size? And I'm like, small. They're like, well, we have tall, we have grande, we have venti. And I was like, what does that mean? Like I'm from, from East Texas, I don't speak Italian. I don't understand what this means, right? Obviously, I'm wearing a Carhartt jacket. I haven't been here before. Let's you know, all this stuff. So they're like, okay, so I order like a tall cup of coffee, right? And you know, it's the sugar and it's the, you know, whatever. And I, you know, I get my first Starbucks and I go and I sit down and there's just this thing that happens where we sit down and we start drinking our coffees, right? And there's, I I remember 
um, at the time they were like playing music and it was like jazz music and like people are just sitting around reading books, drinking coffee and everyone's just really chill. And like the caffeine hit mine, I was like, oh, this is coffee. Like I just remember I woke up, I was like, I'm awake. Like I can be awake at night now and everything was just amazing. And like people are just reading books. I'm like, that dude's reading War and Peace. That's awesome. He's read War and Peace, his, the whole book and the entire time he sat down right there. Like this is an incredible shop. And so I was like, wait, and people come here all the time. They're like, yeah. So it became a thing like regularly, we like go to the Starbucks and just like hang out on the weekends. And college is what you do, right? There's coffee and you just go hang out on the weekends. And I remember like my third, my fourth, my fifth time going to the Starbucks, I was like, this is pretty incredible. There are a lot of things that don't live up to hype. The Titanic movie, uh, Avatar, right? Uh, they don't live up to hype, right? Uh, you know, Skittles, the first time I had it was a little iffy, right? But Starbucks was living up to the hype here. I was like, coffee shops, someone was understanding something. I get it. I get the buy-in. I understand why people go. I understand why people get addicted to caffeine while they sit in coffee shops. Then there was the like next layer of Starbucks in 2002 where they started doing free Wi-Fi. And now you had your first laptops and you could sit in a Starbucks and open your laptop and surf the internet. And at that time it was only like Ask Jeeves. So all you could do is be like, where's the, other, the nearest Starbucks? I'm in it. That's it. That's all you could do, right? As you drink your coffee, but it was this incredible thing and you could just go and you could eat stuff and hang out with friends. It was just amazing. Well, Here's the parallel. God wants to get the gospel out. And he's gonna get the gospel out a lot of different ways. But one of the ways he's gonna get the gospel out is he's gonna place these gospel-bearing communities in these neighborhoods. They're called marriages. He's gonna put a husband and wife on a block and all the husband and wife are gonna do is he's gonna champion love and she's gonna champion submission and they're gonna work together. And they're gonna demonstrate and model Christ's love for the church over and over and over again. And people who hear about Christianity and they hear about the gospel, they're like, eh, it seems too good to be true. Seems overhyped. Don't think it can live up to its, 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 uh, its billing here. And they're gonna see these Christian couples who live on the block, faithfully living out the gospel and the way they love each other. And kids are gonna come into their house and they're gonna see them and they're gonna see them mowing their lawn and they're gonna see them going to church on Sundays and they're gonna see them demonstrating the love of Christ over and over and over again. And what's gonna happen is that people are gonna begin to buy in to the hype of the gospel because if the gospel can change a rugged man and a, and a beautiful girl into becoming this husband and wife and living in this beautiful radical discipleship community, then my goodness, the gospel is true and could change everything. And so marriage matters, as Paul says at the very end. The reason we do this whole series by the very end is because I wanna make sure if you're gonna move into marriage as a single person and move towards marriage, that you understand that the gospel's at stake here. We don't get married just to um, uh, uh, get our emotional willies satisfied. We get married because there's something deeper and more beautiful going on and God has a bigger purpose. He wants to plant a gospel franchise in a neighborhood and see it radically change everything moving forward. And so if you're someone who's here today and maybe you're single or maybe you're dating or maybe you're gonna consider marriage, may you be the kind of person who gets the vision of Paul's vision of marriage in Ephesians 5 and then for the rest of your life lives out the gospel in your marriage until you die and go to be with Jesus. Let's pray and respond here. I wanna invite you as is our tradition to assume a posture of worship we're gonna, Justin and the band are gonna sing a song and our prayer counselors, our staff are gonna be all the way around and I wanna invite you to respond in a couple different ways. Number one, I wanna invite you to sing. 
Number two, I invite you, if you have need to just meditate, focus, read back through uh, the text. Or number three, I wanna invite you to go see somebody and just pray. If there's a prayer need you have, big, medium, small, we'd love to pray for you. Um, and then afterwards, after we sing the song, I'll come back up and wrap up and then we'll do a hug and pray and then we'll get into our Q&A afterwards.